0: Sir, distinguished guests, fellow alcoholics, and friends. I can assure you that I count it a very great privilege and honor to be invited to come here from Canada to address this Northern Illinois Conference of Alcoholics Anonymous. I arrived here yesterday with an old friend of some 35 years standing in friendship who was 77 years of age and who decided the day before yesterday that at long last he wanted Alcoholics Anonymous. And I said, well Jim, if you want to get it with me, you're going to have to go to Rockford, Illinois to attend the conference. <laughs> But I am certain that the class of member that you will find in the northern part of that state will give you a step on the high road to recovery that you will not soon forget. Jim and I arrived here yesterday, and since our arrival, we have been treated with every kindness and generosity could give, or hospitality could lavish. We were met at the airport by courtesy and drove us here. We attended a very fine meeting last night, dressed by Gene, whom I had the very great pleasure of meeting at Founders Day at Akron in June, and in his speech last night I found not only an inspiration, but a delight. Kurt and his charming wife, Buddy, entertained us lavishly at the golf club. I was initiated this morning into the mysteries of a red ball meeting. And I can assure you, good people here tonight, that Jim and I have nothing but praise for you, good people, of the manner in which you have treated us. Canadians coming south of the border have not always found it so. There is a friend of mine, a Catholic priest, who is wandering in the deep south and encountered a heavy storm, anxious to get out of the east, fury of the elements, he knocked at a farmer's door. But when the little old farmer came to the door, looked at him suspiciously, and he said, Who be you? He said, Well, he said, I'm a Catholic priest. The farmer said, Well, we are Southern Baptists. We don't have no sucker trade with Catholic priests. The priest looked over his shoulder, went to the place above the mantle, and said, Well, he said, This surprises me. He said, you have a picture of Pope John the twenty third over the mantle. The farmer kneeled around and looked at it. He said, Who did you send that one? The priest said, Well, that's the Holy Father. And the farmer said, Well I'll be turn. That damn sail who told us it was Harry Truman and Masonic regalia. <laughs> it is always pleasant to see so many ladies at an aA meeting, and it is always pleasant to see the look of serenity that is on their faces, when one can reflect on what that appearance might have been some years ago. And I am sure that none of the lovely ladies whom I see here tonight will ever find themselves in the position of the Harris housewife, his husband came home one night and said, my angel, how nice you look tonight. Unaccustomed to such compliments, and no doubt suspicious of the motive, the so wife said, why John, how kind of you, but why do you call me an angel? He said, well, he said, you're always up in the air, you're always harping on something, and you never have a damn thing to wear. <laughs> Men always liked that story, the isn't one of those mothers driving an automobile down the father's thoroughfare, trotting the car dexterously in and out of traffic. And little Willie, who was riding with her, piped up and said, Why, Mummy, where are the bees and sons of bees? And Mummy said, Why, Willie, they're only on the road when father drives. I haven't come here tonight to tell stories, I have come here to tell only one story, the story of Bill M. And I have told this story now so many times that the record to me is getting a little traction. But I reflect when I tell it that I am not telling it for the old-timer. He is safe and secure, and she is safe and secure in the troubleship of A.A. I always reflect that I am speaking for the to me, most important man and woman in this room, the person who is here tonight for the first or second time, wondering in fear and trepidation, whether the therapy of this troubleship will work for them. And if such there be here, then I ask them to hearken to my tale, because it the story of an alcoholic who for twenty years exhausted every single agency he could find in an effort to arrest the dread disease of alcoholism, only to stumble battered, bruised, and beaten through the open doors of AA to find here with you relief that I could find in no other way. As you may have gathered by now, my name is Bill, and I am an alcoholic. And I was born more years ago than I care to remember in or Yukon. And I was born an alcoholic. I say that advisedly because I never had the power of choice in drink. I got drunk for the first time at the age of 10. Helping a friend of mine and white horse bottle wine. There was a large granite wash basin under the frigate to catch the overflow from the filled bottles. And when my friend would move off to another room with the filled bottles, I would kneel down and take a slug of the pleasant tasting liquid from the basin. Then, as in later life, one drink set up the phenomenon of craving, and I drank until complete alcoholic narcosis set in. I did the usual crazy things I was to do later. I blacked out completely. I was sent to the local butcher shop to buy two pounds of steak two inches thick. For typical alcoholic exuberance, I came back with 14 pounds of steak, four inches thick, And I was carried home to my people on the back of my friend, who much amused, put me to bed. Where the following morning, I endured the assistance of my first hangover, learning early in life that bones, and alcohol overstimulates, that also over However, nothing came of that further. But four years later, at the age of fourteen, I went to work on the river riverboat that plied between Whitehorse and Dalton. At the Dalton end of the voyage, the northern terminus of the trip, some four hundred and twenty-five miles by river from Whitehorse, the vessel was usually unload its cargo, and the backhand and mess boy, which I was, would go ashore. One would drink, and on none of those occasions did I ever remember coming back to the vessel. I was always blacked out, dependent on my more sober shipmates to get me back to the vessel. I didn't dare drink in play horse. My father was a noted man in the North Country. He was physically the strongest man in the Yukon, or said to be. He had been captain of the first river steamer to navigate the upper reaches of the Yukon in 1898 at the time of the gold rush. And any 14-year-old stripling who would try conclusions with him about drink would indeed be very foolhardy, so I didn't drink in Whitehall. Later, at the age of 16, I went down to Oregon to complete my high school education. I spent two years there in school where I was In a boarding school with strict discipline, I was not exposed to alcohol, but later I came to the University of Toronto, where I enrolled in a college, a residential college, famous for the prowess of the athletes mates on the football field and in the hockey arena. There I was a member of the University of Toronto boxing team of sport, as most of you know, requiring the extracting condition, and, of course, I couldn't and didn't drink. But in my last year at university, after the boxing season was over, although Ontario was dry, we could get prescriptions for alcohol from doctors, and I always knew a doctor or two who had recently graduated, And I was able to get a quart of liquor in this manner. I got very drunk. I don't remember what happened, but I was told later that I came into the college and patted a certain gentleman on the head who was the virtue of the college and who resented being patted on the head and called Baldy. And the following day, I found myself hailed before the council of the college and expelled, or at least suspended, for a month in my final year. Most of course didn't dismay me. I was at the alcoholic, smart-aleck stage, and I went out and lived with some convivial graduates who were taking a course in teaching at the Ontario College of Education. We got drunk almost every night, and I went back at the conclusion of my month's suspension, passed my examinations, and went on into law school. After I got into law school, I moved into Days in the town where I lived in, in Toronto, where I lived in a rooming house. All of the banks were off. My father was 3,500 miles away. He had arranged a very convenient method for an alcoholic to get money. I simply had to go into the branch of the bank at College in Young Street, Toronto. He sent a draft for whatever amount I thought I needed and the bank would cash it and pay me and my father would pay it on presentation. I started to drink very heavily in my law school days. I never went for lectures. The law school seldom saw me. The only time I have really become acquainted with my classmates are in the class reunion since graduation. <laughs> I used to get prescriptions from a friendly doctor certifying to my illness to account for my absence. Luckily, the dean wouldn't notice that the doctor was an obstetrician and gynecologist. <laughs> Some idea of what I did at law school will be gleaned from my academic records. There were eight subjects in each year, but you could write them all in the file that you failed in the spring, and in the first year I failed in four, the second year in six, the third year I hit the jackpot part and failed in all eight subjects. Fine homes that had been opened to me in my university days were now closed to me because of my disgusting behavior. I would drink usually get involved with some kind or another. At least three or four times during my law school days, I was in jail in Toronto overnight. There were incidents, not without their element of humor. There was, for instance, the night I told Mr. Winston Churchill as he then was. A number of us were drinking in a room of mine. <laughs> And we were discussing a book which Mr. Churchill had written after World War I called the Aftermath. We had a rather heated discussion about a passage in the book relating to Mr. Liberal Wilson's foreign policy, and we could not recall. So with true alcoholic forthrightness, I said, there's only one way to settle this argument. We'll phone Winston and see what he has to say about it. <laughs> so I went to the phone and I placed the phone call to the Right Honorable Winston Spencer Churchill in London, England, and within 30 minutes, the call was completed. I explained to the great man exactly what our difficulties were, and he very politely and patiently explained the passage in the book. And then when he ended, he said, My, my, what frightfully keen chaps you must be in Toronto to go to all this trouble to telephone me about a passage in my book. I could contain myself no longer, and I said, Well, the truth of the matter is, sir, we've been having a bit of a binge. And I shall never forget that warm, rich, British voice that we were to know so well in the dark days of the early 40s coming back over the transatlantic wire. Capital, capital, I've had many a binge myself. Purely <laughs> old. After I finished at the Hall, we were called to the bar in October 1929, after the third thing of March the. Stock market crash, which plunged the Western world into the most acute depression ever had known, and we were called by a curious circumstance before a judge, who, as Attorney General for the Province of Ontario, had been responsible for what drinkers thought was most iniquitous legislation, the Ontario Temperance Act, which had plunged Ontario into the drought which lasted for some years, almost as a vote, as it was in the United States, and may move. We thought if we were going to be called before the Honorable Mr. Justice Rainey, that we should all be as drunk as we could possibly get. And there were 28 young barristers in this group, and luckily there were two key holders, because we were able to put one of each in the line, but hold those in the middle left as we filed into the courtroom. When we got in, the Honorable Mr. Justice Rainey spent about five minutes advising us on our duties as advocates, and then spent the next twenty-five minutes delivering a most learned and eloquent dissertation on the evils of intemperance, little realizing that twenty-seven of the twenty-nine young men in Pugeton were more or less in sterling stages than any bias. When this was over, I knew there was no use trying to get a job in Ontario. My reputation was such that even if there had been much work to do, I couldn't get one, so I went out to western Canada. I went to Vancouver, where a man, an alcoholic, who afterwards became my law partner, became a very distinguished lawyer, in fact, was at that time a professor of English at the University of British Columbia. He and I drank more or less suddenly for three months, and I did nothing to advance my interest, and finally a former attorney general of the province advised me to go to Prince Rupert, a town about two-thirds of the way up the coast, so, somewhere near southern Alaska. I went up there and Prince Rupert was a rather sightful place. It was a city of shacks built on rocks, and rained incessantly. Every excuse for an alcoholic nonsense for drinking existed in Prince Rupert, believe me. And I drank during the six months I was there so much that I knew that if I continued to live in Prince Rupert, that I would surely tell the drunkard's way. I had had an opening with a lawyer who had been ill, and after I had worked there a week or two, there wasn't much work really left to do, and there wasn't much else to do but drink. So I wrote to a friend of mine in, my, in St. Catharines, a Canadian city about 10 or 12 miles from Niagara Falls where I now live, and he suggested that I come back east. I went up to the end to see my father. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went up to Whitehorse to see my father, and he said, when you are in Toronto, all that I knew about Toronto was that it was a frightfully expensive place to educate a son. But he said, now that you've been living in Prince Edward and friends of mine coming from Prince Rupert come here, tell me what you were doing there. I now know what you were doing in Toronto. I'm going to give you a thousand dollars and with that you will have to get a start. And if you can't get a start with that, don't ask me for any more because I'll never give you any more. Well, I knew that my father was being more than fair. I was grateful to him, and I thanked him. But I was frightened in my bones, in the very marrow of my bones of alcohol, because I could see what it threatened to do to me in Toronto and didn't fact do to me. I knew that my bendies had lengthened from just one-night stands in the days in Vince Rupert, and I knew that with me it was a very serious problem. So I said to my father, before I go east, is there anything in the family tree that I should know about insofar as alcohol is concerned? My father said, yes, there is. On my side of the house, you're almost purely Irish. And he said, most people will tell you that you don't have to be Irish to be alcoholic. But most people will also tell you that it does help quite a bit if you are. However, on my side of the house, there is no alcoholism. He said, I could always drink and drink well. I have drunk strong rum in every bar and every famous seaport in the world. My brother, who was a deep-sea captain also, could drink well, and father went on to say that his one sister could take a drink and leave it alone as she felt like. But he said, on your mother's side, you are purely Scotch and English, and he said, you may wonder why there has been no alcohol in the family home for the past 30 years. He said this was simply because if I had any liquor in the home and your mother took one drink, she would drink everything that was in the house. Her brother came into the Yukon in the early days of the gold rush, and the Royal Northwest Mounted Police, as they then were, had to blue picket him out of the Yukon because he was so hopelessly alcoholic they thought that he was freeze to death in bitter cold. So I left the Incarn, knowing full well that I had probably inherited from my mother's side of the house some form of allergy, I didn't know what it was, but I put it at that time, I think, that I had inherited a nervous system that was weakly resistant to alcohol. I slept home with the determination that I'd never drink again, that I was going to employ the funds which my father had so generously given me in establishing myself in a profession which I hoped to practice in honor and in dignity. And my good resolution lasted me down the coast of Alaska, down the coast of British Columbia, through Vancouver till I got to Calgary. When I got to Calgary, two stockbrokers from Toronto were being tried for fraud. They were defended by some of the ablest lawyers in Canada, some from Alberta and some from Ontario. And I thought it would be an excellent opportunity for a young and aspiring counsel to learn something about courtroom procedures at this trial. I went there and met a great many young members of the Alberta Guard who were there for the same reason. And also because the Great Depression is so dried up legal practice. There was nothing for them to do in their offices. And after the day was over, they thought it would be a good idea if we went down to the Palliser Hotel and had a few drinks together. We went down, and it developed that uh, they had no money, and I, of course, had the $1,000. Well, I don't need to tell you what happened. About four days later, five hundred dollars poorer, I started to deny the fall. When I got to Niagara Falls, I saw the lawyer that my friend in St. Catherine had referred me to, who him that I was a useful, energetic young man, who knew about my drinking, inquired about it, I assured him that I wasn't going to drink, and he gave me an excellent, starting salary. He was a very able trial lawyer with a great deal of work, And I found myself plunged into a maelstrom of professional activity that kept me fully occupied from about nine in the morning to one o'clock the following morning, seven days a week, week in, week out, and I worked hard and I made rapid strides in my profession. At the end of three months, however, I would start to crack a bit and I would start to drink at night and while I put on some very disgusting exhibitions the following day, apart from a bottle of beer at noon. I would manage to get through the day. I would keep this form of drinking up for a week or two, when, for some strange reason, i have never been able to understand. Perhaps because my ambition was sharp, I would stop and go back to work again. In the form of last year, the senior lawyer, Dr. of Sir Harry Oakes, the mining magnate of whom some of you might have heard. He was a very wealthy man who had discovered the Lakeshore gold mine, and at that time it was common knowledge that his income was four million dollars a year, and as he had to pay about three million two hundred thousand in that of income taxes, he was a very interesting client for a law firm. I was given a great deal of organizational work to do in the firm in the handling of this man's business. We moved from old premises to more commodious premises. out of the lawyers to the staff. Everything was going along beautifully. I, my starting salary had already been doubled once. And after about a year with this lawyer, I went to him with a partnership agreement made up and asked him to make me a partner in the firm. He said he would, he went through the partnership agreement, proved put in every detail except one, where I had cut myself hopefully in to one-third of the net earnings. He changed that to a quarter. But as this would have meant that I would have earned at least $15,000 a year, which was a very large income in the early 30s, for so even seniors at the bar in Ontario was an opportunity which was a godsend to any young man. That very night, with another lawyer in the firm, I went out in a car owned by Mr. Oaks, as he then was, rammed off a curb at 55 miles an hour into a train. Each door swung open, and the lawyer went hurtling out each door. The car turned over. The Ocean Accident Insurance Company paid. Full poison loss on the vehicle. I escaped with a slight cut over the eye. And the other lawyer who was with me only broke a small bone like his How we were not killed is a mystery to me. And finally, when some days later, I got back to the office. Needless to say, the partnership arrangement was off, and I had thrown away the biggest opportunity I had ever had. My previous handsome salary was reduced because I... Had, bought, had drawn money from the office account on the strength of the partnership to me. I owed the firm at least $400, and funds were to be deducted from my salary to meet this. And all of this was done through the medium of the bookkeeper. The senior lawyer never spoke to me about it. I was alcoholic. I was egotistical, and I resented this with all the force of my alcoholic nature. I said, Why I built this man's business up, I've organized it. Whether I get drunk once in a while or not doesn't matter. I have earned what I have asked, and i decided that I was going to leave. How I was going to leave him, I didn't know. I owed the Dominion Bank four hundred dollars, I owed the funds I had described four hundred. My assets were exactly minus $800. I went down to see my lawyer friend in St. Catharines, and he said, well, he said, you'll have to leave him. There's no doubt of that. And you would better wire your father for some money. So I wired father, a lot of pathetic. I thought and was an assage only to receive back the following day the longest telegram I ever received in my life from anyone. Father sent it collect. <laughs> and then it he explained to me why he wasn't going to advance any further money, but he finished at the end with the cryptic suggestion that I had better try my mother, that she was sometimes a soft touch. So I wired mother, and mother sent me three hundred dollars and I took stock of my assets exactly minus $500. It was then that the type of spirit we have here and that Alcoholics Anonymous intervened to help me. The landlord of the building where we had been before we had moved to more commodious quarters was an elderly, crusty old bachelor, very wealthy and a very shrewd, strong businessman who was also a notorious alcoholic. He told me he had solved his alcoholic problem. That he had solved it by the simple expedient of getting drunk for one full month out of twelve and remaining sober for the remaining eleven. Napoleon would never plan a military campaign with more meticulous attention to detail than the late Charles James Duran of Niagara Falls would plan a drunk. He would plan a of drunk once ahead. He would come into the office with ivy from the walls of his house and colored bits of string and paint to paint the bottles and he would hang bottles out the window. Although he was a hopelessly illiterate man he bought a fine-looking stack of books which were exactly the way he said, to hide bottles of his favorite whiskey behind. He would always start his drunk in the most ceremonious fashion imaginable. He would have a little dinner. He would always invite me down to it. He had some Venetian gold-encrusted garments, that he would drink champagne of it. But the following morning, he would start to drink whiskey, and he would drink many bottles each day for the next thirty days. He would finally wind up at plomogamy where his summer home was, and then his chauffeur would bring him back at the end of the month in horrible shape. His doctor would take him in hand, put him in his own house, put nurses around the clock to watch him. Charlie would send them downstairs for something, and when they went down, he'd go to the window, pull up one of his fish cords. When they came back, he would be well away again, and they never were really quite sure where he got the Wednesdays. And this was the character that now came to me and said, I hear you're going to leave old Jeff. You've got lots of ability. You can succeed if you'll stop drinking, but you probably haven't any money, so you come down to the old building. I'll give you two offices there. And uh, if you don't pay me any rent the first year, it's not going to worry. So, on December the 24th, 1931, Having fixed up these two offices in a very luxurious manner with lugs on the floor, a beautiful library in my private office, all on the $5 down and $5 a month basis, I started my practice. Started it knowing that I mustn't drink and swearing solemnly to myself that I wasn't going to drink. And I didn't drink over Christmas. And I didn't drink over New Year's. But on the 4th of January, I went up to the liquor store and I got a bottle of rum. Why I bought the bottle of rum, I'll never tell you. I knew after I came into Alcoholics Anonymous why I bought the bottle of rum. I bought the bottle of rum because I was insane. But at that time, there was no Alcoholics Anonymous. I put the bottle of rum in the lower right-hand desk in my boy and I left it there all day, and that night I came in, got a book off the shelves, old legal maxims, I remember it well, and I started to read this book. I loved Latin, I loved the flavor of Latin, and I loved these maxims, it was an interesting book, and I was quietly and alone pouring the rum into me and reading the book. Suddenly the door opened and in came a girl and had seen the light in the window the day before. She was a young matron who had retained me in the matter and when she saw the light came up to inquire as to how I was getting on with the work. I asked her if she'd like a drink and she said she would and she had several drinks and so did I and then the events of the evening were a complete blank. The following morning, I'm sitting at my desk, and in comes the local traffic constable and he serves me with a summons, charging me with one of the most serious offenses under the criminal code of Canada against this woman. I looked at it. I was stunned. I was completely bewildered. I didn't have any idea what had happened. I said to the traffic constable, who years later was to be mayor of Niagara Falls for seven years, I said, "Franklin, my God, what am I going to do? He said, well, he said, you have an automobile. He said, I suggest that you sold the local cab company because you probably used the cab. Find those who drove you and see what happens when he took you home. The cab driver I got had become a friend of mine. I had known his sister at the University, Chuck Five was there. And Chuck said, well, when you left her last night, she seemed reasonably contented. She was waving after you as we drove away. She said, he said I can't understand this. I told him what I was charged I put down the phone somewhat relieved, only to pick it up a minute later when it rang, and to find on the other end of it a dentist whom I did not like called Mowler Jones.
1: <laughs>
0: and then I said, I just replaced of the teeth in this woman's mouth. Now you owe me a $150, you're a disgrace to the professional men of this town, and the quicker you leave this town, the better. Well, I was an alcoholic, so I told Mowler where he could go, and then I turned to Franklin and I said, I guess I'm full. And I went over and I retained an elderly, indolent lawyer, a friend of mine, to represent me in the police court proceeding. And I did what every drinking alcoholic does under stresses of that kind. I proceeded to get drunk and stay drunk. And I was drunk for three weeks. Every time my case would come up in police court, my elderly, ill-tendulous lawyer would arise, explain to the court that the accused was ill. He was right, but I had to come into Alcoholics Anonymous many years later to learn that I was ill, and the case would be adjourned. Finally, at the end of three weeks, the old Scotch Carter, whom I know, knew came in me and said, Bill, this case is going to ruin you. You will end in penitentiary. You will be despised if you don't get rid of it. And he said, but first of all, we've got to get you sober. Have you ever been to Homewood Cemetery? I said, no. What and where is it? He said, well, it's a large private hospital about 70 miles from here in Guelph. Or they take drunks like you and sober you up in a few days. Will you go there? I said, Davy, I'll do anything. By this time I was desperate. So Davy took me up to the sanitarium and they had very drastic and stringent methods of dealing with drunks. They wanted to sober up in a hurry. It was explained to them that I had no money, so they were anxious to get me out in very few days. And they did everything possible to sober me up, and in four or five days, Davy came up to get me to take me back to Niagara Falls. As we went away from the institution, I saw a smile playing about the corner of Davy's mouth, and I said, "Davy, what in hell are you laughing for? My whole future is ruined because the full deadly plight of my condition has burst upon me once more." Now that I was sober. Though he said it isn't as bad as you think it is. He said, your lawyer isn't very energetic. He said, I checked up this woman's background. She was from Buffalo. I phoned the deputy chief of police in Buffalo, a friend of mine. And he looked up her record and found that there were four convictions for blackmail against her in western New York. She sent me a certificate of the conviction under the seal of the court at Buffalo, and I put it in my door and I sent for her. She came in with a Shyster lawyer from Buffalo, and I said, Well, what are you going to do about these charges against this young man? She said, I'm going to push them to a limit unless I'm paid plenty. And Davey said, I then said, oh, well, what will you do when you're faced with the, your convictions for blackmail? She said, there aren't any. And he said, I produced the certificate. And the lawyer said, well, Susan, that's all up and so forth. And he said, Davey said, I immediately seized the opportunity to say to her well, Lord, I'll give you a couple of hundred if you withdraw the charge. They agreed, we went to the police store, she was through the charges. I gave them a couple of hundred dollars. They went to the liquor store. I went with them, they bought some liquor, they got fairly drunk, I had a few drinks with them. I was able to steal 170 of the 200 <laughs> Now he will owe me thirty dollars. <laughs> the following morning, I'm back at my desk, acutely uh, conscious of the fact that I had been saved from disgrace and degradation by the Christian charity of an old Scotch carton. And the vicissitudes and the miseries and the humiliations that I had endured were, believe me, such that I knew I was never going to drink again. At this time, I was about 28 years old. A doctor came in to see me. A doctor went to the same church that I did. An elderly, somewhat sanctified individual, he said to me, you'll never do well in this town. You've got to leave this town and start somewhere else. You're a disgrace to the church and so forth and so on." I told him then, with more wisdom than I, looking back on it, I don't see how I could have had this much wisdom, because he was trying, really, to give me the geographical cure which we and AA know does not work. And I told them, I said, I have to fight this battle in my own heart, and my own soul, and if I cannot fight it there and win it, I will never win it anywhere. And when my native belligerence asserting itself, I said, well, you can get the hell out of here, and I'm going to build the largest law practice that this town has ever seen. Vain words, but brave words coming, believe me, from a sick heart, because I was full of fear. But my good resolution lasted me for three months. When again, as a result of insanity, I get on another bender, and now my benders have assumed a very definite pattern. I drink four bottles of whiskey every day with 12 to 18 quarts of beer on top of it, and I keep this up for a period of five weeks. After the first week, I'm no longer able to get drunk, and I'm able to carry on as long as I have the whiskey. If I have to go to court, I change the whiskey for a gin, and I pour the gin into a pitcher on the courthouse table, and I fortify myself as the trial proceeds and as expediency directs, whenever I feel the need of a little substance, because by then I was practically living on alcohol. At the end of four or five weeks of this, I would get off my food, then I would start to feel very sick and miserable, I would get a taxi, I would go to well. I would stay there about five days until my credit ran out, and then I would come back sober for another two months and so forth, and then back again on a four or five week tender. Once in the first year of my practice a year, by the way, in which I earned quite a large sum of money, and showed a considerable net earnings for my first year in practice, notwithstanding my alcoholism. Well, come December of 1931, I'm sitting behind my desk. Charlie Duran, my landlord, comes in, sits down, glares across the table at me, says, Bill, I understand you've been on a bender for the past three weeks. I said, yes, Charlie, I have. He said, well, I've been in here every night talking to you, and he said, you fooled me, and I didn't know. But he said, alcohol is going to kill you. And he said, I'm telling you now that I want to do for you what my brother did for me when I was about your age. I want to give you a cure for alcoholism. Well, if Charlie had reached his arm out and touched the blue walls of heaven with a magic wand... And the cards invited to reveal the pearly gate. I could not have felt happier than at his suggestion that there was a cure for alcoholism. Because more than anything else in this world, I wanted to stop drinking. So I said to Charlie, well, what and where is it? He said, well, it's to whom have you been? And he said, can you go up tomorrow? And I said, well, I'm on a... Coming to trial at Wellham before a jury, but I think it will be over by noon. He said, "I'll wait. And we'll go at noon tomorrow.' Although the county seat is 18 miles from Nardet Falls, so where the trial was proceeding, when I came out at noon, there was Charlie with his fancy girlfriend, and he had my bag packed and in the trunk of the car. With, with the typical consideration and kindness of the alcoholic, he had possibly placed a quart of rye whiskey on the back seat of his automobile, and we started for Homeland Sanitarium, and what I fondly hoped would be the end of my drinking career. We got to Homeland, about the 20th of December, I think I started on this treatment, just before Christmas. The medical superintendent explained it to me. It, was, it consisted of three daily injections of atropin and strychnine. african being a drug that drives up certain secretions, glandular secretions, stimulated as a result of alcohol, and the strychnine, in itself a stimulant, to replace the stimulus of alcohol. And I took this every day, and I stayed there over the 4 Leaving well on the 15th of January, 1932, feeling quite improved. I had read about this cure. I had gone into the institution's library. I had read absolutely everything I could find on alcohol. I had found it listed as a disease of the nervous system. I found that the AMS treatment had been developed by Dr. Lambert at the Bellevue Hospital of New York City. A hospital through whose portals have probably entered more alcoholics than into any institution in the world. One of the most notable being Stephen Foster, who the Old Black Joe and all those other lovely
1: songs.
0: Died in there, an alcoholic with 35 cents in his pocket. While the streets of New York echoed to the lovely melodies he had missed. I felt pretty good when I got back to the falls in January nineteen thirty-two, thirty-three, 33, or 32, and I went to uh, four people. I went to my landlady, I went to my secretary, I went to the old colored fellow with Lamb West restaurant where I ate on Erie Avenue, I went to a whole major I could trust for Kingfish Brown, and I said to them the same thing. I said, I have taken a cure for alcoholism, and I pray to Almighty God that it works. But if it doesn't work, and I take one drink, please don't let me remain on any four or five week bender. The guidance of what I say, take me to Homewood with sanitary and media. And they agreed to do this. Years later, I was to come into Alcoholics Anonymous and read in the first step of the program that we admitted we were powerless over alcohol that our lives had become unmanageable. And here was me in 1933, January, admitting to these people that I was powerless over alcohol because although I desperately wanted to stop drinking, I couldn't be sure that I would and I was asking them to manage my life in the event that I did break out. The cure worked better than I thought. It lasted for 21 months. I had 21 months before the society following that cure. And during those 21 months, I laid the foundations of what did become, and has name, the largest law practice in my before. I enjoyed life. I was happy. I worked, I got in nobody's hair, and I enjoyed life thoroughly. But in October of 1934, I found myself on my way to Pelham Manor, New York, where I was to be an usher at the wedding of a lawyer, a friend of mine from St. Catherine. We arrived down there after a drive on a long, hot, fall day. And I we went to a fiancé's apartment, and I can see her pushing across the back of a truster field, a great. And I found myself reaching out and taking it, and I found these insane, crazy thoughts running through my head. Well, you're 400 miles from where you work and where you practice law. You've been a good boy for 21 months, full ramparts, getting married on the wall, and you owe it to him have a little bend, didn't I? So I got drunk. The following morning, attired in the morning coat and striped trousers and a tall silk hat, I went down to the church, got the traffic cop, sent him down to the liquor store in Romania, so to 3 quarts of that 69, which we put behind the church. I would escort some old dowager up the aisle and then go back and fortify myself against the next trip of that 69. After the ceremony was over, they had a reception, I don't know, I was called upon to make a speech to propose a toast to the mother of the bride, I don't know what I said. The best man, senior partner of the room, now, as he sat here in the homeless sanitarium on his first trip getting over a bender, said that what I had said was a model of what ought to be said on such occasions that I didn't have a clue as to what I said. I went on into New York, Met a doctor, a friend of mine, who had been a drinking companion of mine when he was in medical college and I was in law school. Founded a New Yorker hotel in the quarter of a case of scotch on the desk between two beds. He stayed in now, foaming, never left the room. Drink, 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 foaming people, our phone bill was two or $300. Sunday, however, we had to leave the room because the New Yorker wouldn't send us. to up to you on Sunday, and we had to leave because we were falling apart. I became frightened, and I left them, and went under the tunnel of the Jersey City as I had to do so, and got an aircraft back to Buffalo, where I was met by a nurse. She found my long-suffering legal friend of the who came to get me, tried to get me across the border. I think I still had my morning hold on. When we got to the Canadian Immigration Authority, I insisted and in broken English that I was a poor count, <laughs> and that my son was a to Canadian lawyer who leaked out a precarious existence running aliens across the
1: border. <laughs> the new elephant
0: prevailed over mine, and I found myself in St. Catherine's, where he turned me over to a friend of mine, a chief constable, no less. And in the company of him, in celebrated position, I started back to home the sanitary. And I woke up the next morning on a beautiful fall day, looking out through the windows of the institution, on the rolling that flowed away in each direction from the cemetery. It was one of those lovely autumn days when the air is heavy with all the scents of harvest, a day when every sunlit stone and shadow will claim the greater honor and glory of God. And where was I, looking out upon this beauty, with the blurred eyes of an alcoholic, thirty years old, desperately wondering why in the name of God I could not stop drinking. The medical superintendent came up to see me, prescribed a short course for me, back on the cure, back when I was old. The next fifteen or twenty years, the Wyatt squad worked with a Every time I would get drunk, they would get me into Guelph so fast nobody knew I drank. My periods of sobriety would range from two months to thirty-one months over this period. During that period, I consulted psychologists and psychiatrists in Boston, Syracuse, Washington, New York, Boston, any place I could go where I thought anybody had any help for the alcoholic I went to. I tried playing dogs, I took all the cures I could find. I took the healing cures, right white over I went to, uh, the Wood Sanitarium in Hamilton took the words cure. I did everything that I could to stop drinking. I found a book by Richard Rogers Seabody entitled The Common Sense of Drinking, which describes how he himself, an alcoholic, cured himself of drinking. He was an Boston physician, and he decided that if an alcoholic tried to use willpower, that is, if he said, I want to drink, but I won't drink, it meant eventually I am drunk. He said that the alcoholic would train his mind so that he would associate alcohol with degradation, humiliation, poverty, despair, illness, mental, physical, and spiritual. But whenever alcohol was mentioned, he wouldn't say, I want to drink, but I won't drink. He would say, I don't want to drink because it makes me unhappy. And to achieve this desirable state of mind, all that the alcoholic had to do was to write out his disgusting experiences. Now, this time I have had plenty, and I did this, and I think it helped me to a limited degree. Along came the war. I went into the service against the advice of my doctors, joined the Royal Canadian Air Force. I was cagey. I made friends with medical officers and other officers, warned them about my weakness. They looked after me. I got along with the war fairly well. I got married during the war. My first child was born nine months after I was married. And when that child was born, I was on a bender, a wife that I adored, taken to a hospital in Winnipeg. I was on the training team on the prairie. And I went there four days after to find this film period and find myself the father of a beautiful baby girl. Non-alcoholics in this room will be repelled and disgusted by that tale, but alcoholics in this room will realize that when an alcoholic takes that first drink, nothing matters but another drink. If I went overseas, and I'm not going to worry you with any recital of the messes I shot up overseas and the silly things I did, but I finally find myself honorably transferred to the reserve after the war. found myself with a wife and child in another own way, knowing that the responsibility of being a husband and a parent was all that I needed to make me stop drinking. Come May of 1946, I get in a bender. I go back to home. This time the medical superintendent comes down the path to meet me with smiling face and outstretched hands, and he said, Bill, when you were here before, we had nothing to offer you, but now a wonderful organization called an Alcoholics Anonymous has coming into being, and meet in the basement of the institution here, we're glad to give them donuts and coffee, will you go down and join? Me? I said I would, and that night I went down. But I didn't like the look the seedy bunch of individuals I saw downstairs. What was a man like my standing going down here with people like
1: this?
0: And I went back upstairs. Years later, I was to read in the Blessed Book of Alcoholics Anonymous, a quotation from Locke, where I was a principle which is a bar against all internationals, a principle which refutes all arguments and cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt prior to investigation. This was what I had for AA, contempt without even investigating. Back to the fall, back in November, drunk again, offered AA, refused again, back and remained sober then for 31 months. When my wife developed cancer and my resentment on self setting knew no bounds, I started on pills to kill the pain. I ended as all alcoholics to go on pills to then, back at the wound. And my wife finally died. I found myself standing beside her open grave at Niagara on the lake, reflecting that I had four children aged two to six and that I was the only bulwark that they had between them and poverty, and I swore an oath to my poor dead wife that I would finish the task that we had started in an honor and in decency, and that I would never drink again. Four days later, again, I was drunk. The details of how I got drunk really don't matter. I found myself back at home once. The new medical superintendent looked at me and, and said, You're here for 30 days. And while I was there again, the night superintendent, a member of A.A., came and he put his arm around my shoulder and he said, Bill, he said, when your wife lived, it didn't matter so much if you got drunk. She could take care of the kids. But now these little babies are all alone with strangers. Won't you please come into A.A. for their sake and your own? Calmously, stupidly. And with a arrogance that I can never understand, I put my arm around Ivan's shoulder and I said, Ivan, I won't join AA this time. But if I ever come to homeless cemetery again for alcohol, I'll join AA. Looking back on it, I don't know how crazy I could be because as I spoke to Ivan, it was my thirty-ninth trip to homeless (laughs) cemetery. Two months later comes January. I'm drunk again. I'm back and home. This time the mighty have fallen, and the mighty have fallen very low indeed. Because I couldn't wait to find one of these saving people that I had despised some years before in the basement of the institution. I phoned everybody in the Niagara Peninsula that I suspected of some connections with AA. Finally getting Don Z of the Falls, and I got him on the phone, Don said, Bill, there's a blizzard raging between here and Guelph, But if I have to call her on my hands and knees, I'm going to get there. I've been waiting for this call from you for three years. And I said, Don, will you please stop at my house at Princeton and get a book called Alcoholics Anonymous off the shelves of my library. It's been there for four years, and the time I left. And I went out, and I started to paint the red carpeted of corridors of Homewood Sanitarium waiting for dawn to come. And then a thought occurred to me. They've got a new psychiatrist here. A very smart man. Maybe he can do something for me. I went down and banged on the door of his office and went in and said, I'm Mr. M., do you know anything about my case? He said, yes. He said, your file is about a foot and a half, thick. And I took two days off last week and I read it. And you're the type of alcoholic for whom psychiatry can do nothing. You go in cycles. You have to get drunk about every six months regardless. But he says nobody let me know has ever had the good sense to set up a squad as you have done to get you up here immediately. You'll probably live to be 90, but we can't do a thing for you. I went out and continued my pacing until Don came. Don came in shaking the snow off, and I looked at him. He was clear-eyed, clear-skinned. He radiated the serenity and confidence that I would have given anything in the world to possess. And I thought of three years before when his wife, Elvie, had called me and said, Johnson drinking. Can you do anything for him? And I said, yes, pack his bag. And I went and collected them and put a quarter rye on the back seat of the car and I took them up to Ralph and I gave him a copy of Richard Rogers, Peabody's The Common Sense of Drinking. But it never did any good. He got drunk. But he had come back and he had got over it and i heard him about AA and here he was now trying to help me. I said, Don, I cut off my liquor engineer, even though I've only been here a short time. I'm considering to listen to anything you say, we'll have to go downtown. Luckily, we were on a ward that wasn't locked in, and got down to a pub. I had nine bottles of beer, and the jury subsided, and I said, Don, tell me about AA. The first question he shoved at me was a short He said, Bill, what's the most important thing in your life? And I said, the most important thing in my life, On my children, my law practice, and my home in that order. He said, none of those things is the most important thing in your life. The most important thing in your life is your sobriety. Without sobriety, you are a menace to the children. Their friends, your friends, and public authorities will not permit you to keep them. You will lose your law practice, and like all alcoholics, you will lose any asset you have, including your own. I accept it. What John said then, I had accepted it in the intervening years. He then went on and he said, if you agree with this, then, he said, you have to place the agency that will help you attain and maintain sobriety second. And that will be alcoholic Anonymous. Sure. This means if you have an assignment for your children or an assignment for a client or something to do with your home, and an assignment to Alcoholics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous has to get the green light over anything else. I accepted that principle, and I have accepted it in the intervening years. When Don went on and he said, I'm not going to worry you about the spiritual side of the program. He talks about first things first. He talks about keeping an open mind. He talks about easy dozen than that mode, and so forth. And then he asked me if there was anything troubling me. And I said, yes, I'm a pretty important man on the Niagara Peninsula. What do I do about my anonymity? He said, what's your oldest daughter's name? I said, Gail. He said, Gail, can be asked a simple question five years from now in the yard of her school. That question means only, where is your father? To that question, she can give a variety of answers. She can say, Daddy's in homework getting over a binge. Or she can say, Daddy got drunk, ran over a man with his car. He's in the Ontario laboratory for a man's serving two years less a day. Or she could say, Daddy got drunk and drank up his client's trust funds. He was prosecuted for fast in Kingston Penitentiary. Or she could say, Daddy's in the Ontario hospital of Hamilton with a wet brain. He'll never come out. Or, Don went on with deadly earnestness and said, Alcohol could have claimed from you the last limbed told of the taste from a drinking alcoholic, and she could say, Daddy's in the graveyard at the on the lake with Mummy. alcohol killer. Or she could say, Daddy's a member of AA that he is discharged with fidelity and devotion all the duties of the Father, and I have never seen him drunk. And I said, How oh, are you going to have it come because you can't have it both ways? I don't mean these people here tonight, but anonymity and never worried me from that time on. I went back to the institution, and though I had been jittery, as I have described, for listening to Marlier,
2: comforted by what he had said, and the with me big... I woke up the next morning and the attendant brought in to me. My breakfast tray and on it was a hooker of alcohol of whom would piously provide to the alcoholic on the first two days in the institution. And I picked up my big book and I wrote on the boards on the inside of the back cover where it could never be torn out. 10th of January 52 went AA, and I said to the attendants, you can take away the alcohol that needs the breakfast. I joined Alcoholics Anonymous as of this minute. I am happy to say to you good people here in Rockford tonight that in a few short periods of 24 hours each, on the 10th of January next, it will be 15 years since that day. And in that 15 years, not only have I not had a drink, I haven't had the slightest desire to have a drink. And all this has come about by trying, trying only imperfectly, believe me, to work the principles and traditions of alcoholic Anonymous. And in doing this, Alcoholics Anonymous is told one of Canada's greatest psychiatrists to be wrong in his diagnosis and prognosis of the alcoholic, and he, grateful man that he is, rejoices in the fact that Alcoholics Anonymous was right, and he was wrong when he said that I had to drink every six months. My time is running out. It has, in fact, already run out, and as usual, I'm over time, and I'm going to finish very quickly. I went to a meeting in well shortly after a barber's speech, a good, rousing, sub speech, such as I know my good friend Jim W. here with me tonight will soon be making on behalf of AA and the Peninsula. And I got a great deal of comfort from that speech. A few days later, a bank manager, a friend of mine in the Falls, died. As Willow wanted me to be a pallbearer at his funeral, I went back. Although I wouldn't have dared go back in the old days so soon, but I was confident that A.A. was going to work. I went to the funeral. I was taken to several meetings. Finally went to Don again. Don said, because of anonymity, I think you should join the St. Catherine's group. And instead of joining a group in Niagara Falls, I joined the market group in St. Catherine. I went down and asked a client of mine who had offered me AA many times. He was in this group to be my sponsor. He was a hard business, yeah. blunt, direct, honest man with a wonderful wealth of AA knowledge. And he had really all the finesse of the 10-ton truck that he was exactly the type of sponsor I needed. He told me to learn my AA from the big book and to read it three times the first year and and read it once a year thereafter and never travel overnight without it, and I went to work on it. After I had been in AA3 weeks, I was having trouble with the question of a power greater than myself. Losing my weight, my alcoholism, had made me, uh, uh, at worst, an atheist at best, an agnostic, and I couldn't accept the conception of God in any way, shape, or form. Then one of those curious things happened that can only happen in AA. Three weeks after I was in, I was asked to speak at 1170 Young Street in Toronto, which was the reception center at that time for AA. And I told the married couple, both alcoholics, who asked me to go over, I said, I don't know anything, I can't speak. They said, well, no, go and ask your sponsor. I went to Noel. Noel said, well, it will do you good if you can go. So I was ready to walk on boat and glass. But Noel said, walk on broken and glass. And I went to Suwon. And when I got there, there was an audience such as here tonight. And when I looked out over this audience, I thought it was all homely. Because in my 20 years of Homewood sanitarium, I had made the acquaintance of a collection of lushes as there was in the Dominion of Canada. But I had not seen them for many years, and I thought they were dead. And here I looked in the audience this night and saw men that I had seen in straight jacks, some in delirium tremens, some in alcoholic convulsions, men for whose life expectancy I wouldn't have given the proverbial thing, and I saw them out looking as if they were years younger and looking healthy and happy, I felt them advance to the table afterwards, shake hands with me and tell me how happy they were to see me in AA and to tell me how when they came to believe that a power greater than themselves could restore them to sanity and they had made the decision to turn their life and their will over to that power that they had been relieved in of their problems. I knew that this statement A miracle of modern healing was certainly nothing but an absolutely true statement, and though I had perhaps come to stop, I remained to pray, and I went back to the Niagara Peninsula, secure in the knowledge that there had to be a power greater than myself, because these men could never have achieved their sobriety on their own any more than I could. I went to work. Went to work on the steps, got to the fourth step. Didn't like what I saw when I started to examine myself. Went to my sponsor. My sponsor said, there are no musts in AA. Don't have to do it if you don't want to, but if you don't do it, brother, you're going to get
1: drunk.
2: <laughs> so I did it all 76 pages of it. And I went through an understanding purgament of my own faith and I went back to the night was a a killer in the knowledge that there had to be a college greater than myself because these men could never achieve their sobriety on their own any more than I could. I went to work went to the first step, got to the fourth step didn't like what I saw when I started to examine myself, went to my sponsor my sponsor said there are no musts in AA don't have to do it if you don't want to, but if you don't do so it, brother, you're going to get
1: done.
2: <laughs> so I did it all 76 places of it. And I went through an understanding clergyman of my own faith and put my footstep. And that very July, July of 52, I found myself pouring liquor for old Air Force pals in Montreal. Found myself, when I got a sip of the alcohol, recoiling from it as if from a flame. And this was the promise that I had read in the big book. And this was the promise that, I God, the change fulfilled seven months after that event which I have described to you I went on and did my best to connect to this family. And now I have more or less come to the end of my tale and there are only one or two things that I would like to say. I have belonged to many organizations in Canada, And I have held distinguished offices in many of those organizations. I am a past president of the Rotary Club of Niagara Falls, of the Greater Niagara Chamber of Commerce. My County Bar Association has honored me with the presidency as has my City Bar Association. My colleagues at the bar of the entire province of Ontario honored me with the have softened them their gifts some years ago when they made me vice president of the Canadian Bar Association for Ontario. I am a venture of the Law Society, one of the 30 lawyers who run the affairs of 6,000 lawyers in the province of Ontario. I have been a member of the province of Ontario Council for the Arts, the Ontario Mental Health Foundation, member of the Senate of the University of Toronto, I am currently a member of the Board of Governors of Brock University. I mention these things not in Bombat, not to impress on you good people that I am a person of any importance, but because I delight here at Alcoholics Anonymous meetings to say to you good people that I value my humble rank and file membership in Alcoholics Anonymous more than I do my membership in any of the organizations that I have named, for the distinguished offices to which I was elected. For without you, I do not know what would have happened to my children. I certainly know what would have happened to me. I would have been dead long ago after spending my last years in disgrace and in misery. I like to think of the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous that a thousand fires upon a thousand hills Illuminating the battlefields for every day the sick alcoholic is waging and winning his war against alcohol. It is for us dependent members of Alcoholics Anonymous, the millennial descendants, and direct descendants of those founders to ensure that not a single one of those fires ever goes out. For if they do, then the alcoholic will have no place to go but where he went before, into the darkness of eternal night, and we can do this by ensuring that we see that we are members of a regularly constituted group in AA, that we faithfully attend the meetings of that group, that we do everything in our powers and reach out our hands to the sick alcoholic to ensure that he or she are lifted from the flaming hell of alcoholism and placed on the sunlit highway of freedom once more. Finally, when Don Z came to Guelph, he knew my history. And he said to me, Bill, you've got to come into AA because for you it's the last little house on the street. Maybe, my friend, Don Z was right. Maybe it was the last little house of the street, but I can assure you that I have found it a host of many mansions where there is room for all. Or is anything that I did ask you that? We'll probably lucky on Saturday, too.